Hi, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest, and we're glad that you've joined us today for this podcast. At Restoration, our mission is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So around here, that takes place in a lot of different ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open up God's word to explore the truth of his word and how we can apply it to our lives. And so we hope that you're able to do that with this message today. We would never want this to be a replacement for church. We would like for it to be a supplement for you as you explore deeper intimacy with Jesus. But if you don't have a church home, join us any week at 9 a.m., and 11 a.m. Welcome to Restoration. All right, Matthew chapter 3 is where we're going to be today, so if you have your Bibles, open it up there. Uh, We left off in Matthew chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. Greg finished it, and so just a little context of what's happening here. We are about 25 years later from where Greg left off. All right, so 25 years after the birth of Jesus, birth in the toddler stages of Jesus, we are now in the early parts of his ministry, and here's what's about to happen. The Messiah that was prophesied about thousands of years beforehand, the Messiah that we talked about during Christmas, the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, and the wonderful Counselor, this Messiah is going to step onto the scene here in Matthew 3. But before we get there, we get to meet a man named John. Okay, and this is John the Baptist. This isn't to be confused with John who wrote the, uh, the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John or the book of Revelation. Okay, two completely different Johns. This is John the Baptist. He's a weird dude. You're going to get a little description about him in just a moment. But John comes with a very distinct purpose and a very distinct calling on his life, and we're going to see what that is. All right, so we're going to start. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. All right, so here's John. Here's the situation of what's happening here. The people of Israel had been waiting for a very long time for their Messiah to show up. They've been ruled by Rome for quite some time now, so again, they're waiting for this mighty God to come into the scene and change their situation. And so this Messiah, Jesus, who again will be revealed more next week, right before he comes, we meet John. And again, the importance of John cannot be understated when it comes to his calling and his purpose in life. John the Baptist had a very distinct purpose. He was a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was, one of the, la- he was the last Old Testament prophet that is pointing to the very last capital P prophet, and that is Jesus. And if you were with us when we went through the book of Hebrews, remember what we said, Jesus is the better prophet. So here we have John bridging this gap between the two, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he's pointing to Jesus. So what Matthew is saying right here is he's saying, look, guys, we have to realize that John is actually the one we've been waiting for. He's not the Messiah, okay? He's not the Messiah, but he is the one that's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, which is why it was prophesied, what we read about in Isaiah 40, where it says, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. 
So to be clear, the people, again, were expecting this. Israelites were expecting it. They were expecting someone that would come along like their Old Testament prophet Elijah. And the reason we know this is by reading the last two verses of the Old Testament. All right, look at Malachi chapter four, verse five and six. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And so what Matthew is doing is he's drawing this connection for the original audience. He's drawing this connection. He's doing his best to remind them that this guy, John, is Elijah that they know about from First and Second Kings. But it's not just Matthew that makes this connection. Jesus does the same thing. Look what he says in Matthew 11. Jesus says, for all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, very progressive of Jesus, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so with all that being said, what we're supposed to see here is that before Jesus' ministry begins, John the Baptist has come into the scene for a purpose, to prepare the way. And that's important for us to understand. But the question is, that we have to ask ourselves this morning is how? How is John preparing the way? Well, the how comes in the message that he proclaims. Look at verse two, Matthew three, verse two. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you're wondering the main idea of the sermon this morning, what's the main theme of today's sermon? It's this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which means what we're being told in this text by John is that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's among us. The spirit of God is here. The Messiah is close. And because of that, we need to prepare. And the way to prepare is to repent. Now, unfortunately for us today, we don't like that word. Right? We don't like the word repent. We don't use it in today's culture very much. We don't like when, like when someone uses that word repent, we kind of just shrink back a little bit and wonder like, ooh, why are you being so ugly? Right? Because unfortunately, that word repent has been hijacked. It's been hijacked by the guy that's on the street corner at the Cinemark in the Woodlands, standing on a milk crate with a bullhorn saying, repent. And he's screaming at people that are passing by and saying, you walking sinners, repent. And there's truth to that. But the reality is, we're all walking sinners on this side of heaven, right? You see, the problem is, is he's yelling at this with no love in his heart. I think this is happening out of religious pride more than anything. And so rightfully so for you and I today, we don't like this word because it's been hijacked by the guy that's on the milk crate with a bullhorn. And the reason why I think this is so sad and how this, because this, this guy that's been bullying people has hijacked the word. The reason this is so sad, because repentance is actually one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. It's one of the most beautiful actions in the Christian faith today. Why is that? Because repentance is just recognizing God's grace in our life. It's one of the most beautiful things you can do in the Christian faith because repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit in us as believers. It's, the way, it's not the way that we earn God's favor. It's the fact that we're recognizing we already have his favor. And so we turn from ourselves and we turn back to him. Simply stated, we've said this many times from this stage, is that repentance is just this. Simply turning from, changing course, thinking in a new way when it comes to sin, idols, and most importantly, ourselves. It's worship rightly placed. It's taking it from us and placing it on our creator. 
Therefore, every single act of repentance is and should be a response to God's grace in our lives. And so here's what I want us to do today. Through the text, I want us to see that you and I, the church, that we should be the ones that actually have the market cornered when it comes to repentance. When it comes to that word, repent, we should be, the church should be the ones that have that market cornered. And here's what I mean by that. We should actually be the ones leading it out. And you'll see why in just a minute. Because here's what I believe that will happen. If we want to see change in this world, which I believe is that's the heart of restoration, and it's not change in this world. We want to see people's lives transformed and changed and turned back to their creator. If we want to see that, then I believe the bullhorn that is actually used to turn people back to their creator is the church's repentance. When we turn back to our creator and say, God, let us place our worship on you and you alone. Repentance is our bullhorn. So what would it like, look like for us today to do that? What would it look like for us in all humility to lay our pride down and to repent and turn back to him? Here's the problem. We don't like to do it. We just don't want to do it. Why do we not want to do it? Because at the end of the day, when we repent, what we're doing is recognizing that we are weak, that we have inadequacies, that we have failed. And because the act of repentance means drawing attention to those things, to our faults and our weaknesses, it's completely counterintuitive to what culture and the world would demand of us today. And as we've been reading through the book of Matthew, it has been counterintuitive after counterintuitive process all along the way. Am I right? Completely counterintuitive of how people, the people of God are defined. And so the world says to be mind over matter. That no matter the situation you are in, no matter the context you find yourself in, you can overcome it with your brilliance and with your strength. That's what the world says. We just want to keep pushing forward and we pride ourselves on having no regrets or no regrets. Pride ourselves on having no weaknesses. And so because of that, repentance is counterintuitive. It feels backwards to us. And yet Paul, one of the greatest men to ever live, one of the greatest apostles who wrote the majority of the New Testament, has a completely different mindset when it comes to repentance. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He says this, but he, this is God speaking to Paul about his life struggles, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had a completely different mindset than what the world would tell you today. Paul says, I boast in my weaknesses, not for the fact of lifting my weaknesses up and my failures up, but the fact that I'm lifting up Jesus and what he's done in my life. And because of my weakness, his power is made strong, and it's made perfect. The fact that we are inadequate, the fact that we fall short, the fact that we are weak is why God's kindness, because it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance, our weakness is why God's kindness and power is even that much more beautiful. Paul's saying that when he, when he boasts in his weakness, when we boast in our weakness, God is that much more beautiful and inviting to a world that doesn't know him. So again, if you want to see people that are far from God falling on their faces in worship to him, then it's going to start when they see the church repenting and turning back to him. 
because repentance is the bullhorn for the lost. Now, the other problem we have with repentance is that we often think it's a one-time deal, right? We think when that time where we confessed and said, hey, Lord, I need you as my Savior, that we've repented, we've turned away from, and that, okay, I'm good now, right? I've done it that one time. But the reality is, is for us to grow in Christ, repentance is ongoing. Look who's repenting in Matthew 3. We're actually going to see this in just a second. It's actually the people of God. It's the people of God that are repenting. It's those in Jerusalem, Judea, and all around the Jordan. And so it's the people of God, those that identify themselves as the people of God that are first called to repent. Repentance is what we need to grow when it comes to living the way of Jesus. It's an ongoing sanctification process. So it's not just that one-time deal, I'm good, I got my Savior, I'm good to go. I got my ticket into heaven. No, it's a daily reminder of where I need to grow and daily reminder of stripping this sin, these idols off of me. It's how we display and witness to the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the people around us is by ongoing, vulnerable, transparent repentance. So we boast in our inadequacies, we boast in our failures, we boast in our weakness, because in our weakness, the power of God is made perfect. Our greatest witness to the world, to those that are far from God, those, don't, those that don't know him, those that don't know Jesus, they recognize they need something. We're all worshiping something in this world. Whether you're worshiping Jesus or something else, you're worshiping something we were created to worship. So those that are worshiping things other than Jesus, they recognize there's something inside them that says, I need something that's better than this. And our greatest witness to that is when we boast in our weaknesses and say, I need him more than ever today. Now, to further my point on why the church should be leading the way when it comes to repentance, I want you to look at verse 5. Again, I just said this. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region were, were about the Jordan, were going out to him, going out to John, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, this is amazing. Here we see that God has raised up this prophet, the people of God, the people of Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region around the Jordan are going out and confessing their sins, and they're being baptized. This is, this is amazing. This is what's happening. This is a full-on revival that's taking place. Do you see that? But we have to ask the question here, what exactly are they confessing? Okay, because remember the context. Jesus hasn't revealed himself as the Messiah. He hasn't lived the life that we couldn't live. He hasn't died the death that we deserve. He hasn't been raised from death. He hasn't given us the Holy Spirit as if with our faith in him. And so what exactly is happening here? What are they confessing to? I believe what we're seeing in this passage is the Spirit of God moving in people's hearts in such a way that pride and arrogance and self-importance are beginning to fall to the power of humility. That the humility of God is beginning to work in these people in a way that they never imagined. And so as we look deeper into the text, I believe what we're going to see is multiple ways that pride is one of the main barriers between us and God. Pride is the main friction point where when we are trying to commune with God, communicate with him, that pride is the one that is stopping us from being able to do so. And what we're going to see is several symptoms that come from pride. If pride is the root cause, we're going to see several symptoms because I believe that pride actually leads to the majority of the sin in our lives. And what I believe to be true is the same kind of pride that ancient Israel wrestled with is the same kind of pride that we can wrestle with today. 
And so the question I want us to be thinking through for the rest of our time is this. Do we need to repent of what the ancient Jews were repenting of as well? Do we need to confess to the same things? Do we need to turn from and place our worship back on our creator? Like if we truly want to see a movement of God, if we want to see the walls of religion broken down, and for God to move in miraculous ways in and around Montgomery County, then what would it look like for us to repent in honest and transformative ways today? Because again, repenting, like if you don't repent, John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is near. How much are you leaving on the table and experience the kingdom of heaven if we don't repent? How much are you leaving on the table? Now, before we can get to understanding the first two symptoms of pride in our lives, what I believe is relevant to both us and the ancient Jews back in the day, I believe we need to understand the significance of baptism real quick. Greg is going to talk about this more next week. But two things I want to point out real quick. Baptism wasn't new at this time. Okay, baptism was often used, some theologians believe it was used for Old Testament purification rituals. But also, baptism was when a Gentile or a non-Jew was converting to Judaism. So if you were a Gentile or a non-Jew, you would be baptized as you were being converted into Judaism. So baptism wasn't new back in the day, but I think this is important for us to see. This is why I believe this makes this passage so amazing. Because Matthew is saying that Jerusalem, Judea, and the entire region around the Jordan were being baptized by John. This is incredible God activity. We say it at the benediction of every service that we want to see incredible God activity at all times. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's a spirit of revival being poured out on the people as God raises up this prophet and calling on people to repent. And what happens? The whole nation responds. Incredible. Men, women, and children are waking up to the fact that they have no right standing with God except through their coming Messiah, which is going to make it easy for us to see what kind of pride they're repenting of. The first kind of pride they're repenting of is the pride of lineage or genealogy. They're repenting from the fact that they believe their lineage, their genealogy, their family line is what made them right in the eyes of God. Because again, I want you to think about this. The people being baptized were not just Gentiles. It wasn't just Gentiles that were being baptized. These were people from Jerusalem, Judea, and all around the region. So we have to, we have to assume that if this entire people group is being baptized, that there were Jews being baptized as well. These were ancient Jews that were doing only what Gentiles typically did when converting to Judaism, which tells us that they're finally beginning to understand that they need God's grace just as much as anyone else, that the justice and mercy of God wasn't satisfied because of what family you were born into. And Matthew furthers this point when he quotes John by saying this in verse 9. He's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees right at this moment. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. What? God is saying, hey, don't trust in your salvation because you were born from this lineage. Because God could make these stones into children of God. That will get you killed back in the day. It did. The fact that John says this is absolutely crazy, and I want to keep going back to the point that we've been making along, all along the way in the book of Matthew, that God's ways are counterintuitive to our ways, that God's ways are counterintuitive to common sense. God's ways are counterintuitive to religion. Because what we have seen since the beginning of chapter one is that the people of God are being redefined. 
We have seen over and over again that the right standing, us being in the right standing in the eyes of God has nothing to do with the perfect lineage or where we've come from. Because the lineage of Jesus was just, as Greg's words, just a jacked up bunch of people, right? So the people of God are being redefined all along the way. And it has nothing to do with your lineage, but rather, how do you respond to the person and work of Jesus? Now, how does this play out for you and I today? Because I don't think there's a lot of you in this room today that would be like, man, I'm, good, I'm in good standing with uh, God today because my lineage is from Abraham. Like, is there anyone that's, proclaimed, that's saying, hey, I'm in good standing with God because of Abraham? No, I don't think there's many people in here that would say that. But let me ask you this question. How many of you would identify as a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home or in a Christian family? How many of you would identify because you grew up in a Christian, identify as a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home or with a Christian family? And the easy way for us to suss this out, right? The easy way, if you don't have a teenager, that's, that's what it means. The easy way for us to identify whether this is you or not, to identify if you think you're a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home is if you don't feel any remorse over your sin, you don't feel growing love for God, for his word, or for the people that God has placed in your path, that you don't see how any of your dreams and plans or passions align with the God's calling on your life, and yet you identify as a Christian just because you grew up in a Christian home, then this might be you. Do you see how dangerous this can be? I mean, how dangerous this, I mean, this is why John had some very choice words for them, right? How dangerous this can be. And the scary part is I believe that there's many of you today that have put your faith in the actions of your parents. And just because you went to church as a child, you go to church today. And because of that, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. And if I'm being completely honest, this is one of my greatest fears of taking a role in ministry. This was one of my greatest fears as a father who happens to be a pastor. That my children would somehow, through second hand, or through being, have a faith that's passed down to them or second hand. That it wouldn't be a faith that they own. That it's theirs. Because they recognize the work of Jesus in their lives, not because of what he's done for me. And so my fear is, is that these beautiful kids that sit in front of me today wouldn't do that. And yet this morning... I have a tough morning with my oldest. And I don't know how to reconcile the situation before I'm supposed to come here and preach a sermon on repentance. <laughs> and so I had to go. And praise God, the Spirit of God produced a desire for him to call me and confess and apologize to me this morning. Before, like, I didn't know how I was going to get up here and preach. And yet before all this happens, he calls me about 30 minutes beforehand and says, Dad, I'm sorry. I mean, praise God, that's him. That's the spirit of God working in my son. Or maybe his mom telling him. But either way, <laughs> either way, praise God for that. Because I don't want my kids' faith to be secondhand or passed down. I want them to recognize the power of Jesus in their lives. Amen? Hmm. <clears throat> Sorry, that literally happened this morning. 
So the question we have to ask ourselves today is this, is do we need to repent of pride in our life because somehow we've come to the conclusion that because we grew up in a Christian home or because we grew up in a, a Christian family that we are now in right standing with God. Because here's the truth, God is not interested in the faith of your families when it comes to salvation. He's not interested in the faith of your family when it comes to your salvation. God wants to do a work in you and through you and all too often it comes in the midst of your weaknesses as Paul says, because it's in your weakness that God's power is made perfect. So do you want that today? Do you want God's power to be made perfect in your life? Because like John said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't leave it on the table. Don't leave the peace, the joy, the patience, the kindness, the love that the kingdom of heaven can bring into your life because you've chosen, you know what, I'm good. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can have it. The next thing we're going to see in this passage is that the people of God were repenting from believing that they were right with God because they practiced the right religion, which again, I think is an easy trap for us to fall into today. So let me ask this question. How easy is it for you to put your confidence in the things that you do when it comes to your salvation? How easy is it to put your confidence of your salvation into the things that you do as a Christian? For instance, how easy is it for you to be confident in your salvation by the fact that you come to church on Sunday, that you sing worship songs, that you take communion, that maybe you attend a Bible study here and there? How easy is it for you to put your salvation in the things that you do? You see, some of you walk in and out of here every Sunday with such ease and comfortability because you get it. You know what to say. You know how to talk the talk. You know how to walk the walk, right? And so you know what Christianese to say in order to subvert some conversations that might just actually expose who you are and expose the things that you're dealing with in your life. Expose the weaknesses. And so you get it. You know the gospel and you say, you know what? I'm good. But the problem is, is that over time you begin to realize that you aren't seeing change or growth in your life. And maybe, just maybe, you've convinced yourself that you've hit some sort of ceiling and you're bored. And Greg has said this before, like if you're bored in your faith with Jesus, guess what? Jesus is bored too, right? This kind of religious pride, this kind of religious pride is so deadly and quite frankly unbiblical. We think we know everything because we've done the Bible in a year. So we listen to a sermon and we go to ourselves, you know what? I hope Joe and Susie Schmuckatelli, I hope they heard that sermon, that sermon right? Because the Schmuckatellis, they're bad people. They need to hear that sermon. If your name is Schmuckatelli, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, I'm trying to think of a name that, like, just, you know, that is, I'm going to be clear. No one's going to have the name Schmuckatelli. But you think to yourself, man, I hope they heard that sermon because I'm good. And so you find yourself in the secret place. And when you're in the secret place and you're communing with God, you find yourself thinking about the sin of other people rather than your own. And I've said this before, that if you find yourself in the secret place and you're on your knees and you're asking God to search me and know my ways, to find those things in my life and root that sin out of me, but yet you find yourself there and the only thing you're thinking about is the sin of other people, then you're not in the secret place. You're just in a dark closet talking to yourself. Because when you're in the secret place with God and you're asking him, you can't help but to a holy and just and perfect God, you can't help but see your own sin. That's the reality of a secret place. 
And so in that place, you have an opportunity to boast in your weakness and your inadequacies, inadequacies and say, Jesus, I need you more than ever. Would your power be made perfect in me? You see, the reality is, is that the voice of God, so often, if you find yourself with religious pride, the voice of God has been suppressed in your life for so long that you can't even remember the last time you fell on your face in remorse over your own sin. Right? And so, what would it look like for us to repent from the pride of genealogy or how we grew up or where we grew up, but also the pride of religion? Next, we're going to see the need for repentance in verse 7. It says this in Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, again, remember what's happening right now. All these people are flooding John. They're coming to him in confession, which is, an, again, a revival that is taking place, which would naturally draw the attention of the religious elite back in the day, just like it would today. Many of you probably remember the revival that took place on the campus of Asbury this summer or this year. Remember that? I mean, this drew attention, national attention on the news, but it also drew the attention of the religious leaders of the world today. Some were happy about it and were ecstatic about it, about what God was doing, and some were also condemning it. It drew all kinds of attention, and what this text is saying is... What we see from John is some very choice words for the religious elite because the pride that they're having to deal with is just as real and just as dangerous as the others we've talked about. It's the pride of legalism and self-reliance. It's complete absence of relationship with God masked in words and actions declaring the complete opposite of that. Okay, here's what legalism is. Here's what self-reliance is. It's the complete absence of a relationship with God masked in words and actions declaring the complete opposite of that. It's when our relationship with God doesn't match up with our words and actions. And much like I said a couple of weeks ago, I think it's easy for us to take the sin of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, King Herod, and put it on a pedestal and say, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like, the Schmuckatellis are up there too, so I mean, thank goodness I'm not like them. But I don't think we get off that easily, do we? Because legalistic pride is rot, is rot within the church today. Am I right? And where the places we see this most often is within leadership. The places we see this most often is leadership. Either those in church leadership or those that desire to be in church leadership. But we also see it in those that spend their lives criticizing the church. And so what we know to be true is those that are susceptible to the pride of legalism is both the church leader and the critic. You see, the danger of the church leader is how easy is it to build the personal empire in the back of Jesus? How easy is it for the church leader to build an empire on the back of Jesus? And this is scary for me. This is hard for me. Because I have to recognize how easy is it and how susceptible I am to falling into the trap of preaching the gospel, talking about the gospel, sharing the gospel with people on a daily basis, and yet never having a personal relationship with Jesus. A relationship that never leads me to remorse over my own sin. And yet so many in the church are willing to just let it slide. 
we're willing to allow the sin of church leadership to just kind of slide because of, look what all the good that's being done. Right? We see and hear the stories of transformation taking place, and we're like, you know what? We need to give them a pass because look at all the good that's being done in the church. And this is where the church critic steps in. And the problem with this is we actually need the voice of the critic. We need their voices. We need them to speak up with discernment, but it's just too hard to hear it over their own sense of superiority and self-righteousness. Because we do need discernment. We do. I need it. But here's the problem sometimes, and let me be very clear about this. Discernment, I hear all too often that people have the gift of discernment. And that's true. That is a gift that God gives. But discernment is this, understanding when your ego ends and God voices, God's voice begins. If you don't understand the difference between your ego and God's voice, then I don't know if you have the gift of discernment. But the problem is, is with the church critic, these are often the people that have been hurt by the church. Right? These are the people that can't walk away from a sermon without criticizing it. They spend most of their time frustrated because no one listens and no one takes what they have to offer seriously. No one gives them authority. And yet they've been the ones that have been hurt by the church. And so rather than working through that pain, they let it, they let it build up into bitterness, bitter, what am I saying? Bitterness and resentment. And here's the reality. Like the church has hurt so many people. The church has hurt so many people. There's so many people. If you are in here today and you identify because you've been hurt by the church, I recognize that, and that is real. And there's some people that have been hurt in unimaginable ways and often at the hands of leadership. I've hurt people. I've caused pain. I'm a broken human being. And so if that's you, I'm sorry. My heart breaks for those that have been hurt by the church. But I want to give you hope this morning, whether or not you're the church leader or the church critic. So whether or not you find yourself in the category of the church leadership or the church critic, I want you to recognize this. Legalistic pride keeps us forever trapped in the game of comparing ourselves to others. Right? We say, that's not me. I didn't do it. That's not like me. Right? I'm not the schmuckatellis. I'm the Agnew, so I'm clear right now. Legalistic pride enslaves us to the thoughts and opinions of others. For the church leader, you fall into the trap of thinking, well, they just don't know what I'm going through. They don't understand the pressure, so it's okay for me to step into this a little bit. And if you're a church leader, if you're in leadership in any sort of position within the church, I recognize that pressure. I know what it's like for more, than, more often than not, when you get a phone call or a text message from someone, it's because they are in trouble. And now the pressure is on you to help them through that. I recognize that pressure. But that doesn't mean you get to set your stuff aside and say, you know what, they don't understand the pressure I'm in, so I'm going to step into this sin, and I'm not going to feel any remorse over my sin. That I don't need a relationship with God right now because they just don't know the pressure I'm under. Or for the critic, if you're constantly comparing yourselves and wonder why they don't notice you or why you're constantly being overlooked... Again, the good news for you this morning is this. The hope we can cling to today is that Jesus never overlooks us. He's never surprised. He's never confused about what's happening in our lives, but he does want to change the patterns and thoughts of your life. He does want you to think in a new way. 
He does want you to boast in your weakness and your failure. He does want you to repent because in his kindness, again, in his kindness, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance because in his kindness and grace, he wants to exchange anxiety in comparison for confidence and peace. That's the good news we have today. And so when you repent and you turn from your ways and the focus of yourself and back on your creator, you get to experience the kingdom right then and there. It's a touch of heaven that's come. Lastly, real quick, the final type of pride that we need to pray through this morning and question whether we need to repent of is the pride of self-reliance. The same pride that the Pharisees and Sadducees are played with. Now remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they built their entire ministry, their entire lives were devoted to following the law. 600 plus laws that they were devoted to following. And so there was a lot of self-reliance that would come along the way. I mean, how many laws have you broken already today just driving here? These guys were focused on keeping the law constantly. And so constantly they were focused on their self-reliance. And so let me ask this question. How much of what you do is dictated by what God says versus what seems best to you? when it comes to your self-reliance, to your pride. How much of what you do is dictated by what God says versus what seems best to you? How easy is it for you to read the words of the Bible and walk away unresponsive to it? Because self-reliant pride allows us to put our faith in the things other than God, especially when things are going our way, right? When things make common sense to us and we have worldly success, we tend to fall into the trap of believing that, man, things are going well for me right now, so I must be in good standing with God. And so when we find ourselves experiencing promotions and raises and successful kids and grandkids and beautiful homes and vacations, it makes us think that we must have it all together. And then we begin to ignore the very hard sayings of Jesus, exactly what he says in Matthew 10, 39. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a very hard saying by Jesus. This quote was actually recorded over four different times in the Gospels. So it meant a lot to the apostles back in the day. So it must be relevant and important for us today as well. Jesus. So when Jesus is saying is that if you are constantly trying to figure this out on your own, if you're constantly trying to pull your bootstraps up and by your own brilliance and your own strength, figure it out on your own, then you will lose your life. You'll lose it all. But if you let go of your pride, if you let go of your self-reliance, if you let go of your idol of self, and you leave these things up to Jesus, then you'll actually begin to experience life and life to the fullest. That's a hard saying by Jesus, but it's truth. And so Jesus, John, and Matthew are all saying to us this morning, repent, turn away from, think in a new way, boast in your weakness. You will find life that is so much more beautiful and abundant than you could ever imagine. And so we've seen the symptoms of pride played out in several different ways, whether it's genealogy, religion, legalism, self-reliance. And so getting back to the context, many of the people that were coming to John were doing their very best to lay these things down, right? They're coming to him and confessing, saying, I don't want to live this way anymore. But John had something so much better in mind for them then and for us today. Look what he says in Matthew 3.11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John knew the calling on his life. He knew that he must increase, or I'm sorry, he must decrease so that Jesus can increase. 
And the reason why John was good with this is because he recognized and knew the power of God. And then he knew the power of God when he was in the womb. Do you remember the story in Luke when Mary, who is still pregnant with Jesus, goes and visits Elizabeth and she's pregnant with John? And what does it say that John does while in the womb? He leaps for joy. In that moment, he knew the power of Jesus. He leaps for joy. And the Holy Spirit falls on him and Elizabeth and Zechariah, and it is a beautiful thing. And so John knew the power of Jesus. He knew the power of God in that moment. John lived a life of radical devotion to God. He knew the peace, the humility, the love, the life that the Spirit of God brings, and he knew that all these things were about to be made available to everyone. The people of God were being redefined in this moment. No longer would the Spirit be reserved for the select few that God deemed at specific times. No, God was going to send the one who could redeem and restore his entire creation back to himself through the humility of the cross. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, resurrection, Jesus would pour out the Holy Spirit on those that come to him with nothing but the empty hands of faith. The scripture is saying, hey, your genealogy, your religion, your legalism, your pride, it means nothing to me. Come to me with the empty hands of faith, and I'll pour out my spirit on you. And so as we finish today, I fully believe that many of you in here desire and want to know Jesus better today than you did yesterday. I believe that you want to understand him better. I believe that your desire is to walk into this new year with this newfound passion for walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's to say, safe to say that we all want this. I mean, that's why we're here today, am I right? I mean, if you're here today just for going through the motions, there's so many other things you could be doing. You could be playing golf or watching football or having good food, but the reality is, is you're here today. And so don't waste this moment. The kingdom of heaven is near. The question remains, how? How do we grow? How do we grow in Christ today? And that answer is in the message of John. It's repent. The answer is humbling ourselves before God and worshiping him instead of anything else. All repentance is, is truly worship rightly placed. And here's the good news. Here's the beautiful part. If you can see where you need to repent today, then praise God. That means the Holy Spirit is grieved. He is working in conviction of you, and he knows that you want to change, and so he's leading you into a path of repentance. And so if that is you this morning, just continue to confess, this is where I need change. This is where I want to move. This is the pride that I have in my life. God, root this out of me. Strip it from me. I want you and only you. <laughs> and when humble joy-filled, worshipful repentance begins to happen. We no longer find ourselves afraid to boast in our weakness and confess sin. And when that happens, we can be at peace knowing that the promise of Jesus of an easy yoke and a light burden and streams of water that are overflowing from us onto those that are around us, we can know that to be true, that that promise is true. And so this is our desire, church. This is what we want. It's why our hearts break for those that don't know Jesus because they don't know the power that Jesus has in their lives that, can he, that he can have in their lives and change them and transform them. It's actually what we say at the end of every service. 
that because we've received the DNA of Jesus, that because of his death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit by faith, we've received his DNA. And because we want to see his kingdom come, because John knew and we know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that it's beautiful and it's available to everyone, then we will be his hands and feet in a broken world. We will be love where there is no love. We will be peace where there is no peace. And we will be hope where there is no hope. And we will expect extraordinary God activity at all times. We will expect revivals take breaking out and taking place. Why? Because we recognize that this building that we're in is not a cruise ship, but rather an aircraft carrier. We are launched into mission. Knowing that wherever we go, the kingdom of God goes with us for his fame and glory. And the way we accomplish this is not through some sort of religious or self-righteous facade. It's through us boasting in our weaknesses, recognizing the power of Jesus in our lives and saying, God, I need you more than ever because God's power is made perfect. And when we do that, his kindness is so inviting to a world that doesn't know him. Church, the world doesn't need to see a church that is beaten down and chained to their sins. A church that doesn't really look any different than the rest of the world, but rather a church and a people that are liberated and free in the kingdom of God. Not carrying the same weight of those trying to deal with their failures and burdens on their own. And the response to this, when the church leads the way in repentance... The response will be a church that is growing in the fruit of the Spirit because the kingdom of heaven is near. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And what we will see is much like what happened in this passage is a growing church. A church that's not just growing numerically, but a church that is growing in their ability to boast in their weaknesses because the power of Jesus is made perfect. The DNA of Jesus is made perfect in them. Because if we want to see a church grow, then repentance will be our bullhorn. Amen?